Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris and it's good to be back here podcasting again with you today. All right, today I want to talk about Mystery Babylon. There's some really good questions that were sent in about that and also some sort of tangential issues with the merchants, and I think it's pretty interesting stuff. So we'll get into that later, but first, as many of you know, I'm working on a film about the rapture. Just a quick show note about that. It's going really well. I'm done with all the uh, the mental gymnastics to do with the writing and all that stuff, so now it's mostly on the stuff that I think is kind of fun. I'm uh, you know, editing, I'm shooting B-roll, I'm doing animation stuff. All that stuff, I don't really have a date yet in terms of when it will be released. It really depends on how quickly I can get through some of this stuff, but I'm still kind of looking at somewhere around late summer. Uh, that is the goal anyway, but I do want to mention that I am looking for some help with the website, the 7 Preacher Problems website. I haven't put any time into that, so if anybody out there... Uh, you know, works with WordPress or whatever and wants to help with that. I have a little money in the budget that I wanted to de devote to that. I can do WordPress stuff, but I would just like it to be a little bit better than what I could do. So just some some mild tweaking of things. And uh, So if you're interested in that, let me know. You can email me at chris at chriswhiteministries.com. All right, so let's jump into today's topic, and it's about Mystery Babylon. Many of you know that Mystery Babylon is uh, a term that we give the city described in Revelation chapter 17 through 18, in which John sees a vision of a woman riding this seven-headed beast. Uh, the angel comes along later, interprets John's vision, tells him it is a city, uh, describes a lot of things that will happen to it. And uh, I wrote a book about that called Mystery Babylon when Jerusalem embraces the Antichrist. So clearly, I think that the city is, number one, literal. I think it's extremely hard to get around the literal interpretation of Mystery Babylon being a city. Uh, but number two, I believe that it is Jerusalem, and I need to qualify that as I do in the book. It is the future apostate Jerusalem that embraces the Antichrist. A lot of people, when they interpret or try to interpret what uh, Mystery Babylon is, they view it in light of whatever they in their current paradigm think the big baddie of the day is. So if you're into the new age, you're probably going to think it has something to do with mystery religions or something like that. If you're into, as Joel Richardson is, the Islamic Antichrist theory, you're going to think it is his case Mecca. The reformers, who of course were being killed by the Catholic Church, uh, interpreted it as Rome. And so mostly... It's a very easy, you can almost tell what somebody thinks Mystery Babylon is just based on whatever they, they perceive as the current bad thing in the world is. Uh, the difference in my case is that I don't think that about Jerusalem. I totally love Jerusalem. I'm planning a trip to Jerusalem. I love Jewish people. I've got no anti-Semitic bone in my body. Honestly, I don't. People that know me obviously know that. What I'm saying is that the Bible is explicitly telling us that in the future, Jerusalem will act, and it portrays this, this city as a harlot high priest. She's dressed up in the garb as high priest. She's promoting the worship of the Antichrist. Um, there are lots of proof texts in here. I mean, many, many proof texts that make it impossible to be anything other than Jerusalem. Uh, so in my view, I'm just saying that the, the Bible says that in the future, when the Antichrist is on the earth... Jerusalem will embrace him as if he is the Messiah, and they will promote the worship of him to the rest of the world. It says of, uh, of her that she, that she intoxicates the world with the wine of the fierceness of her fornication. Her 
fornication is so intense, she worships him so mightily that the world is made drunk by it. They're intoxicated by the level in which she worships the Antichrist. So um, she's a high priest, uh, S, and she is um, intoxicating the world into worshiping the Antichrist. So that's the thesis of the book. Now, as I mentioned, Joel Richardson, who wrote the book uh, uh, about the Islamic Antichrist, and I wrote a book called Debunking the Islamic Antichrist. So Joel Richardson and I don't really see eye to eye. He is a pre-rather, I should mention that. So that's, that's really good. But anyway, all this to say that I've been getting a lot of emails recently because he said something about the Mystery Babylon being Jerusalem theory. And so I wanted to respond to that. And I have to tell you, this is a, con- a, a concession on my part uh, because of the amount of emails. I, I really, I, somebody had sent me this right when he said it. He said a number of things that was, were really kind of tempting for me to immediately respond to just a lot of uh, low-hanging fruit uh, where he would say, nowhere in the Bible does it says this thing or that thing. And like, you know, a verse definitely says that thing. You know, I wanted to get into a like Twitter war. Actually, I just wanted you to respond to him in Twitter, but I knew I couldn't even do that because that would immediately cause him to respond. And then I would have to feel obligated to respond. Well, you know how the internet works. So anyway, So this is a concession on my part to even do this much. Uh, I I think that there's a time in my future where I might uh, be more engaged with this kind of thing and and pick these kinds of fights. But right now, I'm just trying to get this film done. That's that's what I'm devoting my entire life right now to. And I just don't have a single instance uh, to do much uh, uh, else. Uh, This podcast is, I'm trying to be sort of bridging that gap so I can still do a little bit more. So that's why I'm here doing this now on this format. Okay, enough said. So this uh, latest email was just really well written, so I'm just going to use his question directly. He says, um, talking of Joel's uh, argument, he said he's quoting him here when he says, another potential problem for Jerusalem as Mystery Babylon is that while Babylon is portrayed as a port city, Jerusalem is anything but a port city. Not only does Revelation depict Babylon as sitting upon many waters, Revelation 17.1, but John used four specific Greek terms to describe those in relationship with Babylon and her waters. There are shipmasters, passengers, sailors, and those who make their living from the sea. He continues, Jerusalem, however, is landlocked, roughly 40 miles inland and up in the mountains. Only if one viewed Jerusalem as the capital and representative of the larger state of Israel, which is indeed a nation of ports and port cities, would this problem be resolved? Okay, so there are a lot of problems with this. Uh, the first is that I disagree with his premise. He's, he starts off by saying that Mystery Babylon is portrayed as a port city. And I would say, where does it say that? He gives us two reasons for uh, justifying that it's portrayed as a port city, both of which, as we'll see, are completely wrong. Well, let me show you what what I mean by that. So he says, not only does Revelation depict Babylon as sitting upon many waters, Revelation 17.1. Okay, so Revelation 17.1 does say that. It says, the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Okay, so I could see where you would think that if you didn't understand what was happening in Revelation chapter 17. The first half of that chapter is John seeing a vision. It's very uh, allegorical. It's very stylized. We've got a seven-headed beast, and we've got a woman, and we've got all this crazy stuff happening. And it's not until the angel comes along in uh, you know, verse 7 and starts to interpret the vision, do we get any kind of literal understanding for this allegorical vision? So that's when the angel says, hey, the great prostitute you saw, that's a city. 
And with regard to the waters, it's, well, let me just read it. Revelation 17 verse 15 says, and the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So you can't have this both ways. Uh, you have to take the angel's interpretation as the truth or the vision as the truth. And he does, he mixes both up in his interpretation when he says the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, I, I would say, well, are you looking for this giant woman to be seated on uh, waters? Is that what we're looking for? And Joel would say, no, the great prostitute is a city. It tells us later that the great prostitute is a city. Oh, okay. Well, then why is the waters not the multitudes, nations, and languages like it interprets that as later? So you can't just mix and match these. Uh, and, and, and so when he says uh, that, that Revelation depicts Babylon as sitting upon many waters, it's certainly not true in the way that he means it in his uh, argument for Mystery Babylon being a port city. That's just, it's just terrible Bible interpretation skills. And I don't think that Joel Richardson is a bad Bible interpreter. I think that he is a good Bible interpreter who has a really faulty premise and is therefore forced to argue bad things. Okay, so the second reason that he gives for Mystery Babylon being a port city uh, is this. He says, quote, John used four specific Greek terms to describe those in relationship with Babylon and her waters. They are the shipmasters, passengers, sailors, and those who make their living from the sea, Revelation 18, verse 17. And that is true. Revelation 18, verse 17 talks about all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all those whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. So first of all, there are uh, a number of things to talk about here. The first thing is that if we just take this in isolation, the only thing that now is necessitated in terms of physicality for the city is that you need to be able to see the smoke of her burning from the sea. I mean, we know that uh, basically every city has merchants from the sea take stuff to it. Probably Jerusalem and Mecca are closer to the sea than most, but both are, are landlocked cities, but they're pretty close. Jerusalem is actually closer than Mecca is, but uh, I don't want to get into that argument. But the point is that, um, so all we need is that these merchants need to be able to see the smoke of its burning and wail about it. And that is certainly possible. Jerusalem is something, he says 40, I got something like 30, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the point is you should be able to see the smoke of Jerusalem's burning easily from the sea, from that distance. I would say probably the same thing is true of Mecca. It's a little bit further, but whatever. But this whole line of argumentation here is disingenuous in my opinion. He says, John used four specific Greek terms to describe those in relationship with Babylon and her waters. They are shipmasters, passengers, sailors, and those who make a living from the sea. So he's trying to get the reader to believe that those who had any dealings with Mystery Babylon were all uh, sailors or shipmasters. And he, he says there are four specific Greek terms, which is, by the way, just an attempt to blind you with science as if he has an actual argument here. Is there anybody that would actually think that the word sailors in English doesn't mean sailors? Like, do you really need to know the Greek word for seafaring men and sailors and shipmasters actually means sailors, seafaring men and shipmasters? It's just an attempt to be like, I've done some deep research here and found out that shipmasters mean shipmasters. 
Anyway, but my point here is that he's making the argument that they're all shipmasters and seafaring men when this section in Revelation 18 is part of a set of three almost identical uh, things that they say about three different groups. Those groups are the merchants of the earth, the kings of the earth, and the shipmasters and seafaring men. They're three distinct groups, all of which say the exact same things. Uh, they start off with, they're all weeping for the destruction of Mystery Babylon. They say, uh, these are three exact things that they say. Verse nine, they will stand far off in fear of her torment. This is speaking of the kings of the earth and say, alas, alas, you great city. So standing far off, fear of their torment and say, alas, alas, you great city. Uh, then we move on to the merchants of the earth who weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk. Uh, but then it says of the merchants of the earth, they're going to uh, stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, for the great city and on and on. So it's the same words, same thing that they're doing. And then and then we finally move on to the shipmasters and seafaring men and sailors who stand far off and cry and say, uh, alas, alas, for the great city, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this pattern with three different groups. So I know he's making it seem as though he's discovered that the Greek words actually mean that all the people that had dealings with Mystery Babylon are sailors when just in context, it's at best one third. So I'm going to move on from this, but I wanted to recap. Uh, nowhere in Revelation 17 or 18 or anywhere else does it say that Mystery Babylon is a port city. I think this came from uh, some of the arguments uh, with the reformers who were trying to make Rome, who also isn't a port city. <laughs> you know, there, there were some arguments in some of their commentaries about. So I think people, modern day people, think that they have to do that. Maybe they're just reading the Sitting on Many Waters and they just aren't even attempting to read a little bit further to see that the waters are peoples of multitudes and nations and that the woman is a city. I don't know what the problem is here. Uh, and it really does come down, in my opinion, to the shipmasters being able to see the smoke of her burning, the one of three groups who mourn Mystery Babylon. They do so from the sea and can see the smoke of her burning. So at the, the very least, you need to be able to see the smoke of her burning. And to that end, I think that could work with Mecca, Rome, or Jerusalem, uh, and none of which are port cities. So anyway, uh, that's just uh, that part. There is another question that this uh, email uh, person asked, which is related to this, but not necessarily to anything that Joel Richardson had said. All right, so this emailer's second question is about Revelation 11, verse 2, which says, Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. He continues, it appears from scripture that the Antichrist will be approaching the peak of his power at the midpoint of the 70th week, as by that time he will have defeated many of Israel's Arab neighbors in war, he will have died and been resurrected, he will be establishing Jerusalem as his capital, and he will declare that he is God. From the midpoint until the day of the Lord begins, the Antichrist will be extraordinarily strong as he is empowered by Satan to make war with the saints and pursue his goals. With all that being the case, how will Gentile nations, quote, tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months when the Antichrist is so powerful at this point and when Jerusalem is his capital? I have not been able to resolve this issue, and I would certainly deeply appreciate your thoughts on the topic. All right. Excellent questions. Thank you for writing. I think to understand this, we need to go back a little bit to the merchants. So the merchants 
a lot of time is spent in Revelation 17 and 18, well, 18, about the about the merchants, the items that they're bringing to Mystery Babylon, almost like a, a little too much information if you just kind of didn't think it was important. But my, I think one of the greatest contributions I made to the Mystery Babylon uh, discussion, I think I'm going to play this uh, at the end of the podcast from the audiobook, is a study on the items that these merchants were bringing to Mystery Babylon. Because it, it starts to develop a picture of what's actually happening with Mystery Babylon and what's happening with the Antichrist specifically around the time after the midpoint. So the items that uh, these merchants are bring are in some cases the exact same items in the exact same order using the exact same words that are used in some cases only one other time in the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament referring to those items that are needed to restart the daily sacrifice, uh, specific incenses and oils that are only to be used in uh, sacrificial systems and, and different things like that. So the merchants of the world are bringing all this material to Jerusalem because they have somehow instituted this massive sacrificial system. And the thesis of my book, False Christ, which I, another book that I wrote, is that the Antichrist will, you know, convince the world that he is the Messiah. Whether he says he's going to be the return of Christ or another Messiah, I honestly don't know. But what seems to be true is that by the midpoint, after he has conquered, uh, after he sits in the temple as God, he is going to, he's going to require what the Bible says will actually be the case for Jesus, the real Messiah, when he comes back. There's a lot of kind of confusing things for people in Isaiah and Ezekiel and in lots of places about the millennium, where Jesus is actually going to be sitting in the temple as God, proclaiming himself to be God. I don't know if he'll need to even proclaim it, but one thing is true is that a kind of new sacrificial system begins in the millennium, where the world is sort of making a pilgrimage to Israel. Uh, during the millennium, where they will make some kind of like offering to the real Jesus Christ in the temple. Uh, it's a rebuilt temple. It's completely different. It's Ezekiel's temple, far different than anything else that that's ever been seen before. Uh, it's this whole new rebuilt situation. But the point is, is that that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, when he comes back in the millennium, there will be an actual sacrificial system and the world will probably, I'm going to be careful around the word required, uh, but they, it seems as uh, if the world is required to come to Jerusalem, make pilgrimages to Jerusalem to give honor and praise and glory to the real Jesus Christ. So the thesis of false Christ is that that's all the stuff that the Antichrist appears to be doing, specifically after the midpoint when the cat's out of the bag, he is declaring himself not just to be the Messiah, but to be God. He stops the daily sacrifice uh, which is notable uh, at the midpoint. And part of the reason he does that is because that's theologically accurate. The daily sacrifice is no longer needed once the Messiah is back and the Messiah is God. I believe through the false prophet and, and whatever else, the Antichrist will be able to, to convince the world of some good theology. One is that the Messiah is in fact God, something that you can prove uh, from Isaiah and other places. And that when the Messiah returns and sets up his kingdom, the daily sacrifice will no longer be required. Something else you can prove from scripture, and I can't remember my argument on that right now, but it's something that obviously is true. We know that sacrifices are no longer required from sin, but there's, I mentioned it in the book, the actual places where I believe the Antichrist will convince them that that's true as well. It, he can convince the world of good theology. My point in all this is to answer the question, um, what is this Gentiles trampling underfoot the holy city for 42 months? 
I think the, the words are very carefully chosen there. The treading underfoot for, uh, of the, of the gen, and in this case is not to measure the court of the Gentiles. Um, don't measure the outer court for it's been given to the Gentiles. They're going to tread underfoot for the Holy City. What, what does that mean? Well, number one, it means that the temple is going to be there. Uh, don't measure the outer court. The outer court is there. It's not like the outer court has been destroyed by this trampling. The, the, it's been destroyed because of the Gentiles uh, going there, frequenting the court of the Gentiles a lot. In, in other words, what we see with Mystery Babylon, the reason why everybody is getting so rich, the merchants are getting so rich with the things that they're selling uh, this Jerusalem and, and that they need for the sacrificial system is because the whole world is now being required to go to the temple in Jerusalem, except I, I think instead of actually the Antichrist sitting in the temple, I think that's why he has the uh, the image of the beast, because the image of the beast is the one that they actually worship in the temple. Um, and I feel the way the reason he does that is because obviously the Antichrist really isn't God and he really doesn't have as much power as he's, he's, he's going to claim to have. So the image of the beast is to be there to be in the temple to receive the worship so he can continue to act as if he's fulfilling this millennial promise. Uh, but in fact, he can't because he's just a man. Um, anyway, the point is, uh, the, the reason why the world is getting so rich is because the Gentiles, along with everybody else in the world, is going to be required to go to this temple to make these sacrifices, and they're going to need to buy uh, lambs, and they're going to need to buy incense and all the stuff that's going to be required. Gold, silver, and precious stones, most of all, is what the uh, Antichrist uh, uh, is looking for. So my point is, to answer your question, this treading underfoot of the holy city for 42 months is is a, is not the Gentiles attacking the city, but the Gentiles being a part of this mystery Babylon system. Jerusalem is going to be the most happening place in the world uh, during this time. There's another passage in Luke to look at, which uses this exact same phrase about trampling uh, the city by the Gentiles in a slightly different context, but I think it's the same thing. But in order to, to get an idea of what I think is happening there in Luke, I think we need to first look at uh, Daniel 11 and 12, where, the, where 11 and 12 kind of intersect. Starting in verse 44, I guess, of Daniel 11, it says, but news from the east and the north shall alarm him. This is the uh, early kind of uh, late, late early stages of the Antichrist's gaining power. Uh, when he is consolidating through warfare, a lot of stuff. He's, he's heard news now from the east and the north. It's going to alarm him. So he's going to go out with great fury to destroy and devote, uh, devote to many to destruction. So he's taking his armies to the east and north. He's going to devote many to destruction there. And then, in verse 45, he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. So after he goes out with that, his army to do that, he then is going to pit, pitch his tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. In context, what's he what's he doing here? He is taking this army, which I actually believe does not originate in Jerusalem, which is why this whole thing is going to be said like it is. I, I honestly think that he comes from somewhere else. My guess, based primarily on this chapter, and this is just a guess. This I don't I have a it's an informed opinion, but I'm willing to be quite wrong about this. But I think he comes somewhere from the Balkans possibly Greece, Macedonia area. I don't know, but I, I feel like the Balkans are the place that I'm watching. But nevertheless, I don't think, and I say that because uh, during this time, it talks about here, he's, he's got the king of the, uh, the, the east and the north. He talks about the king of the south, but the king of the west is nowhere mentioned. 
And so, uh, and contextually, the king of the West is uh, Greece or Macedonia, particularly. That's my hypothesis based on this, but again, I, I'm, I'm willing to be wrong. But I, I do think that in contextually, we can tell that his army that he gathers uh, to do this supernatural warfare, again, I think he has some kind of new trick up his sleeve that makes him uh, unable to be defeated in warfare. So I don't think that the number of men he has at his disposal are is necessarily, necessarily that crucial because of this god of fortresses that he worships and gives him this ability or whatever it is. Who can make war with the beast and all that stuff? So anyway, he pitches his palatial tents with his armies in context between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. So this is uh, between the sea and Jerusalem, basically. So some place between, there's not, again, we just looked at that, what is it, 30 miles, 40 miles? So somewhere like that, he has pitched his tents of his army. So you can make a, a reasonable guess that his army is pretty big if he needs to pitch his tents outside of Jerusalem. Then, uh, what's the next verse say? Uh, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Well, that's kind of weird, isn't it? He just got done basically in total victory, pitching his palatial tents in Jerusalem or just outside of Jerusalem. And then he comes to his end and none will help him. That's sort of a weird way to end it. That's how that chapter ends. But then we have the next verse. It's, it's a false chapter break or a bad chapter break. Uh, Daniel 12 then begins in the next verse, which says, at that time... Okay, so at what time? The time that he came to his end and none shall help him? At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is char uh, charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never been since there was a nation until that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is Daniel in Fast Forward talking about, okay, then... Basically, the abomination of desolation happens in the midpoint, and then we get right to the rapture shortly after the persecution and everything. So he he's, he does that fairly quickly, but the point is that we get a little bit of a snapshot of the timeline here. And this is why I typically say the Antichrist's death and resurrection happens just before the midpoint and just... You know, it says people worship him because of this mortal head wound that was healed. It mentions that many, many times in relationship to the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. It is some people's entire reason that they worship the Antichrist because he was his mortal wound was healed. And it becomes a title for him in the, in the book of Revelation. I think this coming to his end just before... Obviously, just before the the, the uh, midpoint, and pre-Rathers will know that the Michael standing up is actually a picture of Michael, uh, the restrainer, uh, essentially allowing the next thing to happen, which is the time of trouble. If Michael is standing up to save anybody, then he's doing a terrible job, as I've said many times, because directly after he stands up or shall arise in this interpretation, there's a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation until that time. So he's not doing a good job of protecting if, if shall arise means he rises to protect. Before I go any further, I want to answer an objection on this point. I know some of you are out there thinking, Chris, you are reaching too much on this end of Daniel thing when it says he comes to his end and no one will help him. Maybe uh, it just says, you know, he, he plants his palatial tents uh, outside Jerusalem and then just comes to his end and no one can help him. Maybe it's just sort of Daniel closing the book on the Antichrist. And yes, the next verse starts off with at that time, but maybe you can just get around that or whatever. And so maybe I'm just reading far too much into this by saying, well, if he's coming to his end, how at that time is he now doing other stuff? I mean, it doesn't give you an out. You have to say, well, this guy must somehow come back to life to do these other things. That's what seems to be the case. But I could see why you think I would be reaching. And if I am reaching, 
then the Talmud is also reaching because the Talmud, which is probably the most authoritative book outside of the Old Testament for the Jewish believer, people like uh, Naimonides and uh, Rashi, some of the greatest names in, in Jewish commentators, also understood this to mean that this guy had to resurrect from the dead. The only issue in their case is that they interpreted this as the Messiah, particularly Messiah ben Joseph. So I, I explain this in my book, False Christ, but in the, the Jewish world, they sort of split up the job of Messiah into two guys, because really, uh, we, we know that Jesus had two, uh, two advents, his first and second advent, but they kind of do it all at the same time. They call one Messiah ben Joseph and one Messiah ben David. Technically, Messiah ben David is the greater Messiah, if you want to look at it like that. He's the guy that rules over the millennium. But Messiah ben Joseph, they basically interpret as what I just read is going to happen here. The guy is going to destroy the, Isra the Israel's enemies, Edom and Moab and Egypt and all that guy. He, he's going to, with his armies, do all this, and then he's going to take his armies just outside Jerusalem. Now, remember, they think this is Messiah ben Joseph, not the Antichrist. This is a good guy in their, in their view. They think he, he takes these armies outside Jerusalem. In their sort of context, what they're envisioning is he's, he's, he's taking these armies to, to liberate Jerusalem. So they're presupposing that maybe at this time Jerusalem has, uh, is being ruled over by another, a third party. So these good armies surrounding uh, Jerusalem are uh, there to sort of liberate Jerusalem. But interestingly, what they say is at that time, Messiah ben Joseph is killed by one of them, and then is resurrected by Messiah ben Joseph, or by Messiah ben David. Let me just read what I have uh, in the uh, this first kind of summary of the of the Messiah ben Joseph things. Uh, it says, um, "You might be surprised to know that many Jewish people are waiting for a man to do exactly the things I just said the Antichrist will do. Namely, they are waiting for a man called Messiah ben Joseph to destroy the enemies of Israel." And after these wars, march victoriously to Israel, where he will be killed by his enemies, but then miraculously, miraculously resurrected. His resurrection will be the beginning of the Messianic age, but not before root, a rooting out of, and killing of those who will not submit to the new Messianic authority. If you're following me so far, you can see how scary this idea about the Messiah ben Joseph is. So, when the anti, what I'm trying to say here is that when the Antichrist surrounds Jerusalem with these armies, there's no indication that he's hostile towards Jerusalem. And in fact, the Talmud itself recognizes that as a non-hostile action. Um, but what I guess I'm trying to say is that he will, whatever happens outside when he's got his tents planted here, somebody challenges him. I don't know how this happens, but he dies. And it seems to be a fairly public thing. In the Talmud, it talks about how, you know, this all happens in a very public way or whatever. The resurrection is a really big deal. So in other words, when the, the next thing happens, because we see that in the next verse, Daniel 12, when he says, this will be a time unlike any other time, it's those exact words that Jesus uses to describe the events after the abomination of desolation, the persecution that begins. So the, the Antichrist will not enter Jerusalem as a conqueror, he will probably enter through whatever gate the Messiah is supposed to enter, I probably riding on a donkey and whatever else. He's going to enter Jerusalem at this time as the king. He sits in the temple 
not as a person defiling the temple from their perspective, certainly from God's perspective, it's the greatest abomination of all time. But from their perspective, it's not an abomination. From their perspective, they will be glad to have the daily sacrifice end because the daily sacrifice is no longer needed. If the Messiah is here, the Messianic age has begun, the daily sacrifice doesn't exist in the Messianic age. Okay, so we've looked at that. The key point I wanted to get from that actually though, was after he, you know, he's, we didn't read the part earlier in this uh, chapter at the time of the end, starting in verse 40. Uh, he's conquering all kinds of people. He's he's conquering Edom and Moab and Ammonites and Egypt, all Muslim countries, by the way. He conquers all those people on his way. He conquers whoever this is in the uh, the east and, and, and north. And then he comes and pitches his palatial tents between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. So now I want to move to Luke 21, because here we have the same phrase that was in Revelation 11. Uh, where it says, um, uh, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, Luke 21 is the Olivet Discourse. It's the same thing, basically, that we read in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. A lot of people think maybe Luke 21 is somehow a different, set at a different time. There's some decent arguments for that, but I honestly think uh, just th these are the exact same words. I, it's very hard to get around that. Luke 21 is the same as Mark 13, is the same as Matthew 24. The reason that they say that some of them are different is because it sort of describes this scene a little bit different. Preterists like Luke 21 more than they do Matthew 24 or Mark 13, in many ways because of the verse that we're going to read, which starts off but like this. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those who are in the city depart. It goes on the same thing that we know in Matthew 24 that says, when you see the abomination of desolation, that is to say the Antichrist sitting in the temple declaring himself to be God, you got to flee. It doesn't matter if it's Sabbath. It doesn't matter if it's uh, uh, you're pregnant or you're nursing or whatever. Just get out of town because there's a, a persecution about to start. So, But in this case, he starts off with this phrase, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, which is something that none of the others had mentioned that there were going to be armies surrounding Jerusalem. So my contention is that the, that everything described here, because the destruction aspects that it begins to talk about are not destruction necessarily of uh, of the city. It's destruct. It's the destruction in context of the uh, the great tribulation. That is to say, basically the same thing that the others say that it's going to be a time of distress. There's going to be a lot of killing and and so on and so forth. My point is that. We interpret when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, as, and especially that you know its desolation has come near, that out of context, if you didn't know what we just read in Daniel, you didn't know what we, what we read in Revelation, that sounds like, and this is why so many people insist that the Antichrist must be a guy coming to conquer Jerusalem, is because it says, well, it says there's going to, right before the abomination, there's going to be, it's going to be surrounded by armies, and that's how you know that its desolation has come near. Well, remember what we just read in Daniel. We know for sure that just before the abomination of desolation, Daniel 12, verse 1, unambiguously the abomination of desolation event, a time that is unlike any other time, the exact words that Jesus says when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So there's no question about Daniel 11 being that. And there's also no question that we know that it's connected to the verse before because of the, the timing verse at that time. And so we know that just before the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist sets up his palatial tents between the seas and the holy mountain. And I believe it says it that way is because that's where he takes this massive roving band of armies that he's come from wherever with, and he plants them there. And that's when 
I believe he dies, is resurrected, and gets right into the abomination of desolation and the rest of that. It's also important to remember how after the abomination of desolation, you can still have Mystery Babylon operating at peak uh, Mystery Babylon for a while during this terrible persecution, because I think we have a tendency to read the great uh, tribulation from the perspective of what the Bible's main point is, which is that it's going to be a time of persecution of the people that won't take the mark, unlike any that's ever been. There's going to be a time of great hatred of those people. But it's also a time from the other perspective of seeming peace and prosperity. People will say peace and safety. How can those two things coexist? Well, if you decide to take the mark to go along with the program or because you worship the Antichrist or whatever, you're going to be fed this you know, in this context, you're going to believe that utopia is right around the corner as long as you can get rid of these pesky people who are keeping everything back. I mean, I don't know how the, the, the propaganda is going to work, but it's probably going to be like these Christians and Jews and basically whoever's not taking the mark, they're the problem. Once we eliminate them, we can begin the utopia. So there's, and, and that probably will be to a certain extent underground. They probably will be uh, above ground marrying and giving in marriage and certainly doing whatever the Antichrist tells them, which I believe is honoring him with gold, silver, precious stones, and the rest of it uh, that's going to be required. I'm not exactly sure of it all, but uh, it's important to remember that you can have uh, an abomination of desolation and the great perse greatest persecution of all time. At the same time, you can have Mystery Babylon and its opulence and peak and, you know, clean floors in the temple and, and uh, you know, the lights uh, looking very beautiful and all this other stuff. They are not mutually exclusive situations. Basically, anybody that should have fled Jerusalem probably fled Jerusalem at that time. So for the next three and a half years, it's going to be this, uh, this false facade of utopia, or at least up until uh, the rapture happens and the wrath of God begins. At that point, while I'm sure the Antichrist, it, it, the Antichrist operates to a certain degree, uh, it's no, it, the game's over, basically. Once the wrath of God has started, you don't see the Antichrist doing much of anything. His authority to persecute for those 42 months, uh, Matthew tells us, has been cut short. And so we don't see much of what he does after the wrath of God uh, ex exists. We see him, ultimately, the next time we really see him do anything is him getting thrown into uh, the pit in Revelation 19. So he's not a very active guy, I think, in the timeline as soon as uh, the day of the Lord actually starts. And that's, of course, true, because what the Bible says is that God alone will be exalted in the day of the Lord. It is not a time for the Antichrist to shine. Okay, so this went a little bit longer than I was thinking. I honestly did not intend to uh, set out to give some kind of comprehensive view on what I thought about the end times, but uh, it just kind of naturally followed, or I'm very talkative, I'm not sure which. I also want to say that listening back to this, it does seem like, you know, I've got this, got it all figured out, it probably comes off like that, but I don't want to give that impression necessarily. I mean, I, I, I believe in everything that I've said here, but I also know that there's no way to get all of this right. There's so many places where there is ambiguity and there is not enough time to study all the intricacies of things. And I'm sure there are things that I'm missing. And uh, I would like to hear, you know, maybe it is the first half or the second half or the three and a half years. Maybe those kind of details, I think it would be great to hear from you. Um, so uh, do that, Chris at chriswhiteministries.com. Also, uh, if you are the person that can help me with the website stuff for the upcoming uh, rapture movie. I would be appreciative of that as well. Chris at chriswhiteministries.com. I'll link in the description the books. You can get almost all the books that I've written for free as an audiobook. 
you can sign up for the free trial on Audible. I'll put links in the description to all that. In any case, uh, thanks to everybody who listened all the way through, and we will see you next time. Take it easy.